Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. Uh, You can follow us uh, at our website, danproftshow.com. That's uh, where podcasts are available. Uh, also, podcasts available at iTunes and Spotify, social media at Dan Prof Show. That's Twitter, that's Facebook. At Prof Dan is Instagram. And uh, we begin on this program uh, with, uh, first of all, uh, rest in peace, Don Shula, the NFL's all time winningest coach, the only coach of a perfect team, of course, the 72 Dolphins, passing away at the age of 90. Great life, unbelievable career as a football coach i think 347 wins and uh he passed away uh it was reported he passed away this morning uh and uh, that leads us into governor desantis of florida uh ron desantis uh, doing a little bit of fact versus fiction since he was one of the governors prior to brian kemp in georgia being vilified for not doing the things that the left said we should be doing like um shutting down the economy, uh, shutting down civil society without consider without uh, consideration for anything else, for uh, the other competing goods associated with health. DeSantis went through some of the numbers, how Florida is doing compared to, say, how states like New York, where we have America's governor, the general patent of governors, according to the D.C. Press Corps, Andrew Cuomo. Florida was going to be just like New York when it came to the coronavirus. Well, let's look at the tail of the tape. How close were we to New York fatalities? Obviously a much different picture. You know, we have, this is uh, uh, equal population per 100,000, much, much less. Uh, even if you did absolute numbers, we have 2 million more people. New York far, far and above uh, what Florida is. Same thing with hospitalizations, hospitalization rate that is a mere fraction of what you see, not just in New York, uh, but many other states. And so saying Florida was going to be like New York was wrong, uh, and people need to know it was wrong. Second, Florida will be like an Uber Italy. So not just like Italy, way worse than Italy is what they were trying to say. Well, let's see what ended up happening. Let's look at the tail of the tape. Okay, Italy, hospitalizations per 100,000 versus Florida. Yeah, I think Italy was a little worse than Florida there, and that's not even close. What about fatalities? How about fatalities? Again, per 100,000, apples to apples comparison, not even close. So no, Florida was not in uber Italy at all. We've talked about hospital capacity, and I remember reading that by last week, so this was in March, they said by April 24th, Florida would have 465,000 people hospitalized because of COVID-19. Well, that is something that's really scary, especially when you consider Florida only has 70,000 licensed hospital beds. 
So if you're predicting that, you're predicting the biggest uh, break of the healthcare system probably in human history. So what ended up happening? So that's the 465,000, way up there for hospitalizations. You look down, 2,111 hospitalizations. 465,000 versus 2,200. <laughs> the models versus the reality. We talked about the same uh, Elon Musk's graph last week with the projections in California of what hospitalizations would be versus what they were off by a factor initially of 25. Then uh, upon uh, uh, reconsideration off by a factor of 10 still always above, always above. And that always above is an important point. Michael Levitt, who is a Nobel Prize winning chemist, he also teaches structural biology and computer science at Stanford University. Um, He uh, gave an interview to Unheard with Freddie Sayers recently and uh, talked about um, a number of things of particular import. But but in particular, uh, just in, with response in response to the predictions versus the reality in Florida, in California, really everywhere. Uh, Michael Levitt ha- had uh, this to say as it pertains to epidemiologists and their models. The World Health Organization and I think epidemiologists in general can only go wrong if they give them a that's smaller. If I said it's going to be one billion deaths from coronavirus and it's oh sorry you guys have done what i've said there's only going to be a hundred thousand that is considered good policy the they, they overestimated bird flu by a factor of a hundred or ten thousand there was a paper in the guardian the guardian wrote about this uh ebola was overestimated by a factor of a hundred i think they say their role as scaring the people into doing something i can understand that and there's something to be said for it if you could practice lockdown with zero economic cost and zero social cost, let's do it. Um, but the trouble is, is that those costs are huge. We're going to have fatalities from hospital, hospitals being closed down. We're going to have additional children in trauma. We're going to have uh, businesses damaged, maybe less so in the UK because of the compensation policy, but certainly massive economic damage in the USA and in Israel and in other countries. So you need to balance both of these things. And, you know, I, I, it, it seems to me that, uh, you know, that's what I don't think is responsible. If, in, in my work, if I say a number is too small and I'm wrong, or a number in, is too big and I'm wrong, both of those errors are the same. If I'm 10% too high or 10% too low, that is okay. It seems that being a factor of a thousand too high is perfectly okay in epidemiology, but being a factor of three too low is too low. It's such an important point, and we've seen this play out. Talked about it here. Uh, Neil Ferguson, the lead author of the Imperial College London study, had previously predicted that avian flu could cost 200 million lives worldwide. 200 million. The actual death toll uh, over the 17 years of measurement was under a thousand, if I'm remembering the number correctly, from uh, the write-up and Powerline blog. And yet, we're to believe his uh, 2.2 million American dead model. 
and base policy off that. All the incentives, as we said on this show from the beginning, all the incentives for politicians and, importantly, epidemiologists is err on the high side. Don't err on the low side. And err on the high side by uh, factors that, I mean, uh, render your profession a laughingstock, frankly. Certainly some of the models and the predictions past and present from Neil Ferguson, and yet he still conferred some sort of expert status. Those models are still taken seriously. Their predictions still parroted by politicians still to this day, still being parroted. Uh, Michael Levitt on the uh, essentially the death load, the burden of death of COVID one. You'll be surprised who recently agreed with what you're about to hear from Michael Levitt. Flu is like coronavirus. I'm just simply saying that the burden of death of flu is like coronavirus, especially when we correct for the fact that people who die from coronavirus are older on average than people who die from flu. Flu kills young people. It kills two or three times more people under 65 than does coronavirus. If we put those facts into the situation, we find that the burden of death from coronavirus, I'm fairly sure, will in Europe, where we have good numbers, be less than that of a very, very flu. Uh, Basically, uh, cut out a little bit there, will be similar to a severe season of the flu. Not that the virus is the same as the flu, but the uh, death burden, as he said, the suffering quotient, if you will, when you factor in that, uh, as he said, two times to three times more young people, people under the age of 65, uh, killed by a severe seasonal flu than by COVID-19. It will be commensurate. And uh, other people have suggested this. And so they, you're just calling it the flu. I'm not calling the virus the flu. We're saying the impact. And over the weekend, uh, this caught by our friend Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, on CDC's Facebook page, Centers for Disease Control Facebook page, according to the latest CDC COVID view report, increases in hospital hospitalization rates for COVID-19, which are cumulative, have started to level off. The hospital rate, hospitalization rate is highest among adults 65 and older, and similar to what has been seen during a comparable time period during a recent high-severity flu season. That's precisely the same thing that uh, Nobel laureate Levitt had to say and so many others have been saying in the face of ridicule for the last uh, four to six weeks. This is Dan Prof. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show uh over the weekend larry kudlow was on with jake tapper talking about what he expects uh and the people he's speaking with expect for a uh, rebound coming out of the reopening. The economy is still in a terrible contractionary phase, tremendous hardships uh, everywhere. That's why we've put up several rescue packages 
uh, led by President Trump and with the bipartisan support of the Congress. So we are working through that. It's going to be very difficult in the months ahead, no question. Ha having said that, I will note that the Congressional Budget Office and a bunch of private forecasters, uh, Wall Street Journal surveys and so forth, are looking for a very strong second half economic rebound and suggesting that 2021 next year could be one of the fastest growth rebounds in American history or recent history. That, that may be true, but what does that actually look like coming from the depths of what that will actually look like before the economy is fully functioning again? Like... $20 billion worth of, excuse me, $20 trillion, $20 trillion worth of economic activity again in this country. President Trump uh, indicated what he wants the next step to be, at least in part, like as a requirement. Mitch McConnell wants uh, tort reform for companies reopening, and there's some good reason uh, on that score. President Trump said this at the Fox News town hall last night. But we will be doing uh, infrastructure. And I told Steve just today, we're not doing anything unless we get a payroll tax cut. That is so important to the success of our country. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Tamney. He's the editor of Real Clear Markets, realclearmarkets.com, director of, of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can become your job. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start by uh, getting your reaction to what, both what uh, Kudlow had to say about the outlook and what Trump suggests is a must-have in terms of next policy action by D.C. I first put out a column on April 13th predicting a big economic rebound. Let me be clear, not because of anything government will do, but just because the people who build this country, the entrepreneurs, this is what they deal with on a daily basis. This is not to excuse the jaw-droppingly stupid response from politicians on all levels where they needlessly forced a contraction and put tens of millions out of work and forced mass bankruptcy. Politicians deserve enormous contempt for panicking, for having no – foundations about letting people be free to do what they're supposed to do. But if you look throughout history, Nike founder Phil Knight, he spent 18 years telling his wife what he didn't believe that Nike would survive. You talk to any entrepreneur, this is all they know, is constantly staring death in the face and figuring out a way to persevere. And so what will happen is what always happens. Politicians get us into needless wars. They cause needless financial crises. This is what they do. And what will happen is entrepreneurs will bail out the political class again, and they will have the arrogance to say it was the Trump recovery or the Biden recovery. I don't need more policy. We don't need more policy from Trump or Biden or anyone. We just need freedom. And once when you have that, entrepreneurs do amazing things. In a recent piece at RealClearMarkets.com, you said this, government spending is harmful not because of the debt, but because of the nature of the spending. Explain. Why would we ever focus on debt? What difference does it make whether Congress gets it by taxing it away, by just taking it from us, or paying us a very low rate to waste the money? The problem always is the total amount of dollars spent because that just signals all the control that Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Barack Obama, Donald Trump have over the economy. Government spending is the problem because there's no such thing as government spending. What there is is just political allocation of precious resources, basically Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy allocating resources rather than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Fred Smith, the FedEx. You want to leave as much money as possible in the private sector every time. And you know certainly this extraction of $2.9 by the political class 
from the economy is going to slow what would have been a much bigger economic rebound for the simple truth that that's precious resources that government in its infinite lack of wisdom and just stupidity will, of course, misallocate. That's what politicians do. Uh, Michael Milken gave an interesting interview over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal, which he said um, a couple of things I want to get your reaction to. One, he said about uh, the issue of government bureaucracy and the bottlenecks and holding up testing and holding up development of antivirals and the vaccine. To say that you should have done something on January 12th that you didn't do, so what? I don't have any time for that. Zero. I have no energy except to understand where we are today. And Milken points out that what he's doing in terms of pushing philanthropic funding of uh, the development of medicinal remedies to the virus and just in general what he's been doing for the better part of the last two decades, what we're doing is pushing the funding. Philanthropy is about 3 to 5% of all medical research, but it's often what gets it going. You know, Milken to me is the greatest capitalist who ever lived. If you think about how he propelled us forward, it's awe-inspiring. And so what he says I think matters a lot. He knows of what he speaks. If you look back to John D. Rockefeller, the richest man who ever lived, he moved forward a lot of studies of, of immunology that saved millions of lives, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And so this is why I've been responding from day one that the last thing you do in fighting a virus is impose mass poverty. You want people getting seriously rich. You want the economy growing because that frees up resources, a la people like Milk and Rockefeller, Bill Gates, to find answers. And so I think he's exactly right. If we go back to January 12th, I think the danger of focusing on that is implicit there is that the virus itself proved insurmountable and, and hit us like a sledgehammer and we didn't know what to do. No, 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 no. Take that back. The politicians panicked and in panicking created an economic contraction. Nothing against arguing against deaths or anything like that. That's not my place. But the idea that a virus like this could somehow fell the most dynamic economy on earth defies basic common sense. Goodness, we've been through much worse in the past, and this didn't happen. The problem is always only politicians can cause these kinds of crack-ups. This was their crack-up. Let's not blame, oh, you didn't react enough or this government didn't react quickly enough. Businesses react and anticipate problems ahead of time all the time. Leon Cooperman, who is a billionaire investor, as you know, said this recently, capitalism as we know it will likely be changed forever. When the government is called upon to protect you on the downside, they have every right to regulate the upside. Uh, do you agree that capitalism has changed forever because of the response here? Uh, there's that argument. Let, let's not forget that when government gives you money, it doesn't just walk away. It expects some control, and that's why I've always argued that 2008 was not a consequence of banks failing. Financial institutions have failed, been failing for decades, for centuries. Uh, what it was is markets were spooked by the idea that, that governments around the world had gained so much power over us for the reasons that, that Cooperman said, um, that once, once they do this, they want to regulate you more on the upside. And, and so it certainly is a concern, and this is why I'm grateful for shows like yours. We must control this narrative. This was not a consequence of capitalism failing. This was not a, a consequence of a, of a delayed arrival, a, a delayed response. It was a consequence of politicians panicking. And so we must limit the ability 
of politicians to regulate on the way back up. It's a legitimate concern. But again, I think throughout history, there's always that this is the end of this is the end of this. Warren Buffett has gotten rich buying from pessimists about the United States. I think it would be naive to presume that this time is different, that the U.S. is going to be forever altered. I I seriously doubt it. Sure. You don't want to be a Francis Fukuyama and have to correct yourself, right? Uh, John Tamney, (laughs) editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of The End of Work, why your passion can become your job. John, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, at Sunday night's town hall, Fox News town hall at the Lincoln Memorial, President Trump with, of course, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, but also with uh, Vice President Pence and, and uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin for a period of time. And uh, to the argument that is being made by certain big blue state governors that uh, a failure to write blank check block grants to the states is a failure to pay police officers and firefighters and teachers, you know, frontline public sector workers, even though some of them, particularly teachers, may not be working depending on the state and the particular locale. Well, uh, Mnuchin had an answer to take that argument away from the Cuomos and the Pritzkers and the Whitmers of the world. We're not looking to bail out states that were poorly managed. What we did do in the CARES Act, there was $150 billion that was allocated to the states for coronavirus expenses. One of the things the president just instructed me to do, and we sent out guidance on Friday, that states can use the money for policemen, firemen, first responders without limits, so we can make sure that none of those people who have been fighting the front lines in any way are impacted by the states having lower revenues. But the president's very clear. We're looking to help states, but we're not bailing out states' finances. That's a a bright line that uh, the president has drawn, uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate has drawn, and uh, thankfully they did. Now they need to man that line. Uh, For more on the topic, including the topic of reopening generally, we're pleased to be joined by former United States Senator from South Carolina, Jim DeMinn, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute, author of Conservative, Knowing What to Keep, and uh, current member of the Presidential Working Group to Reopen the Economy, Senator DeMint, good to have you again. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Dan, it's great to be with you. How are, how are things in Chicago? Well, they could be better, uh, but it's really a, a political leadership problem we have in Chicago and Illinois. As uh, as you well know, it's it's been something we've had for about 100 years, so we've unfortunately gotten used to it. Uh, but around the rest of the country, you have some uh, governors uh, moving with uh, all due speed to reopen responsibly. Uh, even when there's been a disagreement with Washington. And that has to be encouraging for individuals like you who are trying to help people marshal their way back to uh, to uh, to reopening their economies and their states and people's lives. I think we can see across the country, Dan, that in most areas, infection rates are, have declined. Uh, obviously, we still have to be careful, but we, we can't uh, create a, a view of the whole country based on some large cities like Chicago and New York, where people do live a lot closer together. They're on mass transit every day. Uh, for most of the country, it's much more spread out. So the idea of being able to get back to, to work and play in, in, a, in a reasonably safe way makes a whole lot of sense. And, and the fact is, is we, we can't afford 
to uh, keep America. Uh, folks don't seem to understand that we're, we're already printing a whole lot of money. Um, this is not money that's even borrowed in any real sense. It's actually printing money. And so we'll be paying for this for years. And I think what we have to decide now, Dan, is we can't ever, ever do this to ourselves again. I mean, if the coronavirus comes back in, in the fall, we can't close the government or, or the country down again. And, and if it comes back all next winter, we can't close it down again. We just have to learn uh, to um, to deal with it in a more effective way. And I think with things like masks and social distancing, uh, most Americans can go about their normal way of life in a reasonably safe way. Uh, one of the other uh, red lines that's been drawn by Mitch McConnell is any additional disaster relief legislation has to include litigation indemnification for businesses that are reopening. And we see uh, out of um, uh, San Francisco uh, uh, news outlet, uh, 771 lawsuits uh, filed as of Friday last week against hospitals, senior living facilities, airlines, cruise lines, fitness change, entertainment industry according to uh, Hunt and Andrews Kurth, an international law firm tracking cases that emerged from the pandemic. This is exactly what Mitt McConnell is, is talking about in terms of something that will retard the speed at which we can recover. You're exactly right. And when I was on the first uh, task force conference call with the president, that was exactly what I told him we needed to do because I was in business 25 years. And I realized that this is going to be a field day for the plaintiff bar uh, any worker who goes back to work and, and catches a coronavirus, whether it was there or somewhere else, they're going to be lawsuits because the employer knew the risk of opening back up. And so we, we can't allow this to happen in America, but it will happen. It, there will be ongoing suits for years of threats to sue and settle, which will cost employers a lot of money. And so if we do anything, uh, the states have to agree to um, to absolve all of these organizations of liability because of this virus. Uh, when we come back with uh, Senator DeMint, uh, more in terms of lessons learned and uh, what the new normal uh, post-COVID-19 could look like in a positive sense for economic growth. Senator Jim DeMint, former United States Senator from South Carolina, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute. We'll be back with them right after this. Despacito, quiero respirar tu cuello despacito. Deja que te diga cosas al oído para que te acuerdes si no estás conmigo. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're pleased to be joined by Jim DeMint, former United States Senator from South Carolina, of course, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute and author of Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. He currently serves on the presidential working group to reopen the economy. And uh, Senator DeMint wanted to uh, get your sense of what some of the conversations are on that working group to reopen, because there's uh, a lot of discussion about uh, further deregulation that should come out of uh, what we've experienced over the last several months with respect to innovation, obviously in the pharma space and perhaps other deregulations that uh, that that impeded our response to the virus and also just make sort of good economic sense in terms of trying to grow quickly coming out of this. Well, Dan, I was encouraged by the conversation when, when I hear companies small and large talking about the best practice guidelines they've already developed to bring people back to work safely, to 
you use uh, kind of new guidelines for folks to it's just simple things of washing their hands and wearing masks when they're in close contact of doing things that um, they can do but um, I was again encouraged that so many employers and in restaurant owners and theaters uh, believe that they can uh, reasonably uh, open back up and, and bring people back together uh, so that, that part of it is good I, I think for me, the lesson that um, I've learned, and I hope all Americans have, have seen, I think we've gotten a glimpse of what some people do when they have too much power or they take too much power. If the left really was running the country, uh, what they've done to close churches or not even allow worship in a parking lot in, in a car, and what they've done, and we've seen it a lot in, in Illinois, of, of governors and mayors just taking an incredible amount of power to uh, – to take away your right to assemble, your right to worship. Uh, and so it, it should give every American pause uh, and remind us that we should not give people too much authority. And I, I think we're going to find when this is all said and done that a lot of governors and mayors have, have gone far beyond their constitutional authority and, uh, and invaded the rights of a lot of Americans. But Americans have, have shown that they will uh, – uh, respond with a lot of good faith and goodwill, and most folks have tried to stay at home, but they're at the point where they realize that th this is the point of diminishing returns, and it's time to get back to work and, and, and to play in, into our lives, and there's always going to be some risk involved when we get up every day, so we can't close our lives down every time there's a risk around. Otherwise, we're, we're going to be closed for a long time. How, how did you react to uh, the veritable cheerleading coming from certain quarters on the left to the hammering that, for example, the oil industry is taking, uh, those seeing this as a way to refashion uh, America's energy sector to be uh, carbon neutral, to be completely green, to get rid of fossil fuels? Well, <laughs> One of the things I'm happiest about over the last few years is America becoming more energy independent. And I think we obviously were producing a little bit too much, and then the demand dropped, and we ended up with an oil glut. And a lot in the industry are going to be hurt. But we can't replace particularly natural gas now for electric generation. I mean, solar is great, but it's a supplemental source, the same as wind. It cannot be a, a, a base load uh, for creating electricity or the energy that runs the country. And folks who think we can replace fossil fuels are just not thinking clearly. And, and the fact is, if we could do things like convert a lot of coal plants to natural gas, we could convert cars and trucks to compress natural gas. It's a third less polluting. It wouldn't, wouldn't cost us anything. And within a matter of of, of, of a year or two, we could significantly change um, what's going on in, in the energy industry. So uh, I, I'm proud of the accomplishments that we've made, but I'm really worried right now that we've set our energy industry back uh, for years, and it might put us, again, at risk to some of our foreign competitors who are not necessarily friendly to us. Another concern, and coming from more or less the same quarter, is the idea that we should not encourage people to go back to work right away uh, until uh, they have, uh, you know, a living wage and uh, and more rights vis-a-vis -vis their employer and so forth. This is the brainchild of 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, among others, suggesting that uh, the uh, enhanced unemployment benefits that extend through the month of July should be the new normal coming out of this. You kn- we know that the House Democrats wanted to have unemployment benefits uh, of the, at, at that level extended for six months rather than the four months. And, um, you know, how that could also uh, negatively impact the speed at which we can recover and get people back to work and get our economy churning again. Well, it's it's clear if you're close up and personal like I am with a lot of Democrats, their their eyes are on November 2020. They want to keep the economy closed as long as they can so that the president is uh, presiding over one of the worst economies in history, which is very possible. We could have created more debt than any president in history, and they're going to be complaining that he won't continue to extend unemployment benefits that pay people more to stay home than than work. And that's the situation we've got now where employers who are trying to get cranked back up again can't get their workers to come back because they're making more sitting at home than they were when they were working. And, so and some projections have- some projections on that, as many as half the people who are currently unemployed. Yeah. And, and so the, the political debate in the fall is going to be about extending unemployment benefits and instead of getting people back to work. And so the Democrats are going to keep their thumb on the economy as long as they can. And I hate to say it, and it sounds cynical, but they really do care more about the election than getting America back on its feet. And so I think that we're going to have to have particularly blue state governors be bold and step up and demonstrate the difference in what you can do if, if you're if you're trying to get your state back going again. But we're going to have a battle, uh, whether before or after the election, of this massive bailout that states need. As you know, Illinois was uh, broke on paper before this happened, and so was New York and California. And they're all looking for an excuse for a bailout. So the, the longer they keep things closed the more they're going to appeal to the federal government to come in and bail out their pension plans and everything that have nothing to do with the coronavirus. He is Jim DeMint, former United States Senator from South Carolina, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute, author of Conservative, Knowing What to Keep, and current member of the Presidential Working Group to reopen the economy. Senator DeMint, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, always trying to think of creative ways to encapsulate all of the variables in this discussion about uh, COVID-19 and the response to the COVID-19 outbreak. You know, microbiologists and other and medical doctors and uh, economists and uh, entrepreneurs. Perhaps maybe the best way to do it is sort of Phil George Jeff style horse racing announcer. Just happen to have one here. See if this works for you. 
And they're off. Out of the gate, it's coronavirus, followed closely behind by Wuhan-style lockdown. On the outside, it's global pandemic working hard against flatten the curve. Social distancing got off to a slow start, but he's now neck and neck with flatten the curve. On the inside, it's just a little flu, followed by trust the experts. As they pass the quarter poll, 18 months vaccine is working hard to get past Plaquenil. Dr. Fauci is three lengths back of the leaders. Come on, Dr. Stimulus Fauci. plan is trying to squeeze by PPE as they enter the back stretch. But out on the outside, here comes economic shutdown opened by easter gets bumped a little bit by dr fauci flatten the curve and economic shutdown are battling it out as they head past the half mile pole distance learning stumbled out of the gate and it looks like he won't be able to get back into it not his day-to-day folks they are moving at a brisk pace and all clustered together except for my bank account my which bank is account. way back Come on, in the my pack. bank account he might be injured they might have to pull him up toilet paper is nowhere to be seen he's lost in the pack as they head into the far turn, it's social distancing still in the lead, but daily briefing is lurking one and a half lengths back. It's a tremendous race, folks. I've never seen anything like it. And now, cure worse than the disease is starting to make his move. As they enter the top of the stretch, cabin fever is charging hard, but social distancing is holding him off. Economic shutdown is still looking strong, and he's nose to nose with cure worse than the disease. And on the inside, here comes Dr. Fauci. Come on, and Dr. Fauci. Down come the on, stretch Dr. They Fauci. Come. It's social distancing and economic shutdown now. Where's my bank account? Neck. My bank account. I don't account. believe it. Dr. Fauci is trying to keep pace and with one furlong to go. It's economic shutdown, social distancing, and Dr. Fauci. And as they come to the wire, it's... Oh, my God. It's no one f***ing knows by a head. <laughs> I oh, seen... incredible race, folks. Uh, uh, incredible race. I had Dr. Fauci in my bank account in an exact... Uh, uh, that's a tough... That's tough there. But uh, I do appreciate uh, the summary of the last uh, three months of everybody's life. In addition to that, I appreciate No Safe Spaces, which is the film that Dennis Prager, our friend and colleague, and Adam Carolla put together that tackles the assault on free speech in this country on college campuses, social media platforms, of course, in Hollywood. The number one political documentary of last year, 99% audience rating at Rotten Tomatoes, the highest rating of any film last year. That's how good it is. Featuring opinion leaders, views in defense of free minds and free speech from across the political spectrum, which is somewhat encouraging. Uh, now you can watch No Safe Spaces, live stream it at nosafespaces.com. It's being uh, blacklisted by Hollywood, so you won't get it on Amazon or Netflix or Hulu. Nosafespaces.com is where you'll get it. And for a limited time only, for Dan Prof listeners, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. You can watch that as many times as you want until May 31st. Discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump at his Fox News town hall last night at the Lincoln Memorial uh, had this to say about the prospects for a vaccine. We are very confident that we're going to have a vaccine at the end of the year, by the end of the year, have a vaccine. By the end of this year. We think we're going to have a vaccine by the end of this year. 
and we're pushing very hard. You know, we're building supply lines now. We don't even have the final vaccine. Well, uh, that's not inconsistent with um, what uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb had to say uh, over the weekend on Face the Nation, talking about a vaccine developed in uh, such that you could uh, use it for sort of like a ring around areas of high outbreak if there was one developed on that time horizon and then still continue with clinical trials of more and more people to ensure safety. I think it's dangerous to start putting markers down on time horizon with the amount of clinical trials that have to be done in order to get a vaccine to market. But it's not Trump just sort of shooting from the hip. There are other medical professionals, including his former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who have said something similar. They just provide a little bit more context. It wouldn't be probably available uh, on a mass scale, but it would be in process of, you know, it would be, well, to borrow a phrase, phased in. For more on uh, this topic and other conventional opinions on COVID-19, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Matt Strauss. He's a former medical director of the critical care unit at Gulliff General Hospital in Canada. He's now assistant professor of medicine at Queen's University. Uh, Dr. Strauss tweeted, if total lockdown were a new drug, the FDA would never approve it based on lack of evidence and obvious side effects. Dr. Strauss, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Let's uh, start with Trump and then get to your uh, you're a total lockdown. If total, total lockdown were a drug, the uh, idea of a vaccine and trying to pinpoint a timeline, you know, researchers, Oxford University talking about possibly by September, other medical professionals saying that's a pipe dream. President Trump and to some extent, Dr. Scott Gottlieb over the weekend saying perhaps by end of year, at least uh, in a limited fashion. So I'll be the first to say I'm not a vaccine expert. I'm not somebody who designs vaccines. I know there's supposedly 70 potential ones in the pipeline. Um, I am a skeptic, though, and my skepticism is borne by experience as a physician. We've been working on tuberculosis vaccines for more than 100 years, and we have one. It's just not very effective, and that's why most of your listeners in the United States will not have received a tuberculosis vaccine. So that's after 100 years of trying. Um, likewise, HIV, I, I, I remember reading news reports uh, every five years throughout my career uh, that an HIV vaccine was around the horizon, and, and, and that never happened. So, um, again, I'm, I'm not a person with a vaccine in hand, uh, but I, I just don't uh, – I'm not as hopeful as that. Oh, and, and one last thing. When the Ebola outbreak happened uh, about five years ago, there already was an effective vaccine. It was developed in Canada. Uh, it still took four years to get, get it validated, mass-produced, licensed, and delivered on a large scale uh, in Africa. So. Uh, nine months from now, that, that seems like a pipe dream to me. Uh, you uh, write in The Spectator uh, about uh, the use of ventilators. And uh, for all of the uh, hoopla surrounding the need to produce more ventilators, to get more ventilators distributed, there started to be some questions that weren't really amplified. We talked a bit about on, on our show uh, about is this the best use for somebody in a, a state of serious condition? Is this the best uh, tool to use? Uh, and then there were reports that some doctors had moved to using sleep apnea machines, and that was providing better results for patients. Uh, you write about that as well. Unfortunately, uh, we're flying a little bit blind, not just because coronavirus is totally new. So it might be different uh, in terms of who should get a ventilator. But as I described in that piece, we've never been totally sure about who should get a ventilator. So if I consult my textbooks from medical school, 
um, uh, it, it says if you're if you're if the oxygen level in your blood is less than 90% and you're requiring more than 60% oxygen to breathe in, you should be on a ventilator. Um, that's kind of the, the textbook level fact that that you know was handed down to me by my clinical instructors. But there was never an experiment proving that this was necessary. And so what I talked about in that piece is uh, some physicians, largely in New York City, uh, were noticing that if they left folks not on ventilators on 100% oxygen, uh, saturating uh, less than 90%, they still pulled through. Um, and they started talking on, on Twitter and on YouTube and on podcasts saying, uh, maybe we were wrong this whole time. Uh, and, and we don't actually need as many ventilators as we thought. And the, the first person I profiled, Dr. Uh, Cameron Kyle Seidel in New York, was fired. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say he was fired. He, he had to step down. It's not, it's not clear who, uh, who took that measure. Just for speaking out about this. So that's what I was really interested in, um, is that the sort of chill on free speech uh, in physicians who have different views on, on what turned out to not be necessarily an evidence-based practice. Well, right. And, and just on that evidence-based piece, since, you know, there's so much talk about evidence-based and the trials that need to happen before we're, we're green-lighting any treatment or uh, much less a vaccine, uh, you point out that there's not been a randomized controlled trial showing that sedating people with se- severe pneumonia in order to put a breathing tube down their throat uh, is uh, uh, the appropriate uh, treatment. Yeah, and I, I guess I just see that as a an oversight that my profession has to deal with. But, um, so I'm a life support specialist, uh, and we've been putting folks on life support for pneumonia for 50 years, uh, and we just haven't proven it based on experiment. And and that's not to say I don't believe that ventilators don't have their place. Right. Uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is we, we just haven't shown exactly what that place is. Um, and uh, yeah, it's an oversight. Uh, going back to that tweet I mentioned at the outset, if total lockdown were a new drug, the FDA would never approve it. Um, your point. Right. So we the coronavirus is scary. I understand panic. I understand the rush to lockdown. But now that we're having more statistics come out, like I was talking about, that people under 35 are largely unscathed, um, I think we need to start climbing down from the panic because we don't know what all the side effects of lockdown will be. Obviously, you shut down the economy, people uh, unable to pay their rent, unable to do work that gives their life meaning, unable to provide for their family. That's going to cause amazing problems with mental health, health, with substance abuse. In my country, in Canada, uh, it was noted that uh, calls to police for domestic violence have gone up 25 percent because i imagine because folks are uh irritating themselves while they're each other each other while they're while they're locked up and that has real consequences um one thing i want to say this is very controversial is in canada just um uh, a week or two ago we had the largest mass shooting in our nation's history right uh and i don't view that as a coincidence that it happened during this uh completely unprecedented lockdown so we, we just we're dealing with unknowns. We don't know what we're causing with this. And there's no and, and just uh, I'm glad you raised that issue. Uh, there's been no reporting that I've seen in terms of his motive or any any uh, supposition about motive. That's still a pending matter, right? It, uh, it's pending. And uh, our prime minister spoke on national television saying we shouldn't really bother ourselves too much with wondering what that motive might be. <laughs> really? Um, wow. Yeah. 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 
Um, the, the larger question that I sort of uh, insinuated at the outset, the politicians who just prattle on saying, listen to the experts, listen to the experts, listen to the experts. And um, just within the medical profession and, and uh, speak to what you know in Canada, um, do, do your eyes roll the way that mine do to say, well, there are experts, there are people that have the same credentials that have honest differences of opinion. So when politicians say that, like they are relying on oracles from the medical or the public health community, they're lying. Uh, well, yeah, lying's, lying's a hard, uh, I know, a, that's why a I harsh used it. word. Yeah, um, that's why I used it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's fair. Um, yeah, I, when I talk to my colleagues, they all seem to agree with my line of thinking, um, but these are not the folks who end up, I guess what, the, the chief physician in a country, that's a political appointment. Like they're, they're, they are indeed choosing the experts that they want to hear from to some degree. Uh, Dr. John Ioannidis is, is maybe the most famous epidemiologist in the world. He's at Stanford. He's someone I respect very much. He's been a lockdown skeptic since, since the start. There's nobody who's more expert than him as far as these things go, and his voice has largely been ignored. So, yes, absolutely. There's, um, uh, there's a lot of play in terms of who, who gets called an expert and who doesn't. He is Dr. Matt Strauss, former medical director of the critical care unit at Gulf. I think I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, General Hospital in Canada. He's now assistant professor of medicine at Queen's, Univers Queen's University. Dr. Strauss, uh, say hello to Alanis Morissette for us, and uh, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello, Alanis. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you can go your own way. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, despite the despicable media coverage in Chicago that uh, was picked up nationally about uh, the uh, rally goers in Chicago and Springfield last week, uh, as was the case in so many cities and states around the country, calling for a balance, calling for the beginnings of a reopening, not calling for nilly-willy reopening with no consideration for public health, particularly for those who we know are vulnerable, the, the aged and those with comorbidities. No, no. The characterization, because one person had some unfortunate sign, and we don't even know who she was, they may have even misinterpreted the sign, but any conversation that involves calling people Nazis is by definition, unless you're talking about Hitler's regime in World War II, it is by definition an ignorant, silly conversation. People across the spectrum need to learn that Godwin's law is not an actual law that you have to follow, but actually representative of rally goers in Chicago and I and most of the rally goers around the country, I suspect was Jody, uh, Jody, who was in Chicago for the rally on Friday. She had this to say about why she was there. Hi, I'm Tina, and why are you here today? What was your name? My name is Jody, and I'm here today because I think they need to open up Illinois. They need to open up the USA. I'm a healthcare provider that's been at risk my entire life, okay? Be smart, 
Be safe. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. You'll be fine. We have to open up Illinois. Too many people are suffering by not working. Absolutely. Thank you, Jody. You're welcome. Can I, so I give you a good example, representative of a common sense realist as a healthcare professional. How about as a governor? Don't always agree with what Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has to say, uh, does. But uh, compare Mike DeWine, who's received high marks from some on the left and some in the media. I repeat myself because he was a quick shutdown guy. But listen to him explain uh, yesterday on This Week on ABC his uh, 180 on the mask requirements statewide in Ohio. Face masks are very important. And our, our business group came back and said, you know, every employee, for example, uh, should wear a face mask. So we're continuing that, uh, whether it's retail or, or wholesale, whatever it is, manufacturing, every employee is going to have the face mask. But uh, it became very clear to me uh, after we put out the, the, the order uh, that everyone in retail who walked into a store as a customer would have to do that. It became clear to me that that was just a bridge too far, that people were, were not going to accept the government telling them what to do. DeWine says it's still a recommendation, but uh, essentially, without saying it this way, he's saying, you know, I'm in the business of getting consent of the governed. I'm in the business of persuasion when persuasion works rather than coercion as my first impulse. Compare and contrast him to governors like Pritzker in Illinois or Whitmer in Michigan. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Harry Cassianis, he is a senior director at the Center for the National Interest. Harry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You uh, essentially wrote about this uh, in a similar vein, talking about, uh, you know, the need for for life to go on. And uh, the implication in your piece is clear as well, an important one. You know, it was consent of the governed coming in. And you're going to need to maintain consent of the governed if you want to maintain a shutdown. Otherwise, you're not going to have a shutdown even if you want one. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, you said something just now, I think, that I just don't think is getting lost in this whole debate, irregardless of whether you're a progressive or conservative or whatever. Balance. We have, for some reason, well, I think I know why we've lost it. We've lost this concept of trying to balance the lives that we want to save, which, you know, we, which is obvious, but also making sure that we have an economy that when the, these lockdowns are over, which they will be over, we need to have something to actually come back to. And what I'm afraid of and what I tried to put out in my piece here is that I think there's something very obvious that nobody wants to say, but I think that needs to be said. People are going to die from coronavirus, perhaps a great deal many of people. That is a, a great human tragedy. But at the same time, if we put such a high value on that goal, which is a noble goal, which, which, which I don't think anybody can dispute, we will be in such mass debt that we will not be able to have an economy left over. And right now, the, the numbers are, are, are already telling within six or seven weeks, we have 30 million souls unemployed. Many of those people are not going to get those jobs back. And I think we, we need to be able to find a balance. And nobody is trying to say that has this perspective that we don't care about human life or that people are Nazis or, or terrible things. But as you said, we have to be able to find a balance. And in different parts of the country, they are going to find different parts of the balance. In Hawaii, for example, their cases have gone down dramatically. They may be able to fully reopen. Whereas I live in Maryland, our cases are still sort of holding. We may not be able to do that. So I, I think we need to have a broader national debate and not demonize one another when it comes to these issues because it, they're, they're too tragic to do that. 
Well, and, and you know, it would be fascinating, too. I haven't seen any uh, polling outfit do this, but it'd be fascinating to actually survey, you know, 65 plus on the issue of reopening uh, with the context that you provided, too. I mean, do you really want to uh, have a shutdown where we can do things in a surgical way. We can have shelter in place orders. We can take the evasive measures we need to take to keep uh, elderly people uh, away, to keep those with comorbidities away, do a better job at long-term care facilities while still opening up the economy to people who are less vulnerable, if vulnerable at all, which is basically the young and the otherwise healthy. What what would that group of vulnerable people say thinking about their children and grandchildren. I bet they would be on board for a more balanced approach, but they don't have the opportunity to hear their, uh, we don't have the opportunity to hear their voices because they're too busy being represented by preening politicians like some of the governors I mentioned. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and people are, are starting to use this crisis to score political points. And you, know, you have to wonder, I believe there is a lot of governors out there that are for a more balanced approach to open more sectors of the economy to maybe move a little bit faster or maybe even move at a county by county approach where maybe more rural counties like for us, for example, us in Maryland do not have these type of problems. And I'm sure in Illinois as well. Yeah, absolutely. Down south. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and, but, and, and the other but, thing, too, just to, to your point about uh, uh, partisanship, well, there, there's so little coverage of uh, governors like Gina Raimondo in Rhode Island or Jared Polis in Colorado who are also moving to reopen. Gosh, I wonder why that is. Yep. And, and I'll give you a great example. I am from Rhode Island. My mom and dad are in Providence, Rhode Island, in one of the, the major hotspots that's starting to go down. But the governor is is talking about reopening parts of the economy, you know, asking seniors to stay home and asking those folks who have, you know, underlying health conditions to stay home. And look, I'm impacted this by this personally. My wife has stage four kidney failure. Oh. So what that means is that I have to, do, to to shelter with her because I could bring it back with her. But there are a lot of people, my friend, who do not have these issues that are, you know, 25, that maybe aren't visiting elderly or, or older people who have comorbidities who can go back to work, who can can start to, to bring back this economy. And if we don't do that, what are we going to have? 30, 40 percent unemployment? Look, I'm a Greek American. I, I have a lot of family who is in Greece. You do not want to have a situation hmm. where the economy is destroyed and the debt is, is through the roof because it takes a decade or so to bring it back. And, and we can't have that. Yeah. And, and, you know, as the point's been made many times, without a strong economy, you don't have a strong health care system. Uh, and uh, and uh, I mean, it's just as simple as that. He is Harry Cassianis, Senior Director at the Center for the National Interest. Uh, I'll tweet out his piece at spectator.us. Dear politicians, life must go on. And uh, best to you and your wife as well. Thanks for joining us, Harry. Thank you, sir. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. It's been interesting to watch the left's defense still of the uh, Flynn prosecution slash persecution. Of course, they have to keep up appearances with their Russian collusion. What's the word? Witch hunt for two plus years. But, you know, they're in trouble. They feel the ground crumbling beneath them when you have op eds like this from Dean Obadiah at NBC News. Trump's defense of Flynn insults COVID-19 victims. 
<laughs> he's not defending Comey or the FBI or the Mueller investigation anymore. It's bad taste. He should be focused on COVID-19 victims. He shouldn't be able to address more than one issue at the same time, particularly when new information comes out, as it did last week. We discuss the notes that reveal the motive of FBI was not to pursue the truth wherever it may lead. It was to put General Flynn in a trick bag. It was to get him to lie. It was to get him fired. It was to use him as leverage one way or the other to climb the food chain, regardless of the truth. And you'll recall last week, uh, but let's reframe it here, our friend Aidy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Manhattan and a you know, Comey colleague who otherwise was inclined to be generous to Jim Comey at the outset of all of this years ago, Less generous now. I think what we're seeing is a meticulously planned out scheme to try to get a 33-year combat veteran of the United States to say something that was inaccurate so that they'd have a basis to try to charge him with false statements Mm -hmm. or otherwise get him fired. They did not have a legitimate investigative reason for doing this. There was no criminal predicate. There was no reason to treat him like a criminal suspect. And this uh, is what Alan Dershowitz raises as well in his piece in The Hill over the weekend, where he uh, uh, makes the point that uh, lying to the FBI, not a federal crime unless the lie is actually material to an investigation. So how can a lie be material when the FBI already knows the truth because it has it on tape, as is the case of Flynn? Is it material if the only reason the FBI asked the question was not to get the subject to provide truthful information, but to get him to lie. And he uh, goes back to a Charles Bridle, uh, appellate court judge on the purpose of grand juries to buttress his case, does Dershowitz. For more on the case, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist American Greatness and The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Dan. So you've written about the uh, Flynn prosecution as well and why you think it's dirty. Do your your opinions uh, more or less line up with Professor Dershowitz and Andy McCarthy? Uh, Yes, sir. And uh, I want to take you back to the moment when the Flynn interview was happening. It was January of 2017. The new administration had just taken office. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the Russia collusion investigation had already fallen apart at that point in time. Several of key fronts had already bombed out. Let's just start with the fact that the FBI finally got around to interviewing the source, the primary source for the Steele dossier. And this guy's name is Sergey Million, and he disavowed everything. That was right around the middle to late January. Then the other thing that happened was that BuzzFeed article came out with all the, the story about the dossier, or it actually had the dossier in it. And immediately what happened was that Cohen disputed and refuted the story about him going to Prague to pay off these hackers. It wasn't true. He produced his passport. Czech intelligence uh, also disputed it. And then in addition to that, the FBI had run several spies against the Trump campaign, against Carter Page, against George Papadopoulos, against Michael Flynn. There was an FBI agent planted in in a strategic briefing, and of course against Carter Page too. And all of these all of these confidential human sources had come back and said, nope, no collusion. These people denied it. They denied it when they didn't know that they were being interviewed by FBI agents. So on all three fronts, this had bombed out in January, and that's what sets the stage for them to go talk to General Flynn. When they go talk to him, the, the, the new notes that, were, that have been revealed 
because of uh, intervention by the the U.S. attorney from St. Louis, uh, show, as you said, that the stated purpose was to catch him in a lie to uh, one of the stated purposes to to try and either get him out of office or to or to create a predicate for him to get prosecuted. But then it gets even worse after that. After the interview, they take the notes from the interview with General Flynn and they edit them. It's called a three FBI 302. And there are actually several versions of the FBI 302. And some of the new uh, information uh, reveals a dispute between Page and Strzok. They're arguing over how to edit the 302. And Page is um, is basically getting angry with uh, with how Strzok edited the 302. Well, uh, Flynn I, knows nothing about this. I, I want, he, he Adam, hold on a second. I want to pick it up right there with Strzok and Page, the lovebirds. That's a good place to stop. Yeah. We'll uh, pick up uh, this discussion on the Flynn persecution uh, with the uh, Page and Strzok disagreement Adam, with Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking about the Flynn persecution amid the uh, evidence that uh, the new documents that came out last week, the notes from senior officials at the FBI suggesting that they were essentially trying to entrap Flynn. They weren't searching for the truth. They weren't trying to affect justice. They were trying to jackpot Flynn for the purpose of getting him to uh, getting him as leverage against President Trump in their pursuit of President Trump under the auspices of the Russian collusion investigation. And Adam, as you were going through the progression here, taking us back from the beginning to um, uh, the notes and what the notes tell us about uh, the mindset of senior levels at the uh, senior official uh, senior officials at the FBI, uh, we left off with Strzok and Page and their disagreement on how to edit the notes. Right. So that, that's so part of the problem is, is he's his lie that he supposedly told is something that's been massaged and edited by the FBI. And there's no there's no audio recording of the of the original interview. Well, why why didn't the FBI record what it was that Flynn was saying if they were planning on prosecuting him for lying? I mean, if they went into it going for a lying prosecution that um, uh, lying to the FBI or making a false statement, then they, then logically you would have, you would have audio taped it. So it doesn't look good that they didn't audio tape it. And then they edited the statement later on without Flynn's participation. But worse than that, Dan, Dan, Flynn is being accused of lying about a conversation with the Russian ambassador. And that is all supposedly on audio tape somewhere, but you know what? They've never allowed Flynn or his attorneys to listen to that audio tape or read the transcripts. So not only did they edit the statement that they say is a lie, they won't listen to they won't let him listen to what it is they said he said in the first place. Well, he has to totally rely on their faith on, on faith that what they what he did was wrong or what he what they say he did he actually did. Well, and, and and of course uh, you know, they clearly have his best interests at heart, don't they? Um, here's the, the the other thing is that in uh, previous documents we find that the FBI inter, the uh, FBI agents who interviewed him didn't believe that Flynn was lying after they had interviewed him. Oh, yes. And it's not only just uh, uh, the uh, the FBI agents who, who came out of that interview saying that. They told McCabe that. McCabe admitted to that in his testimony right. to, 
to Congress later on, and yet he prosecuted them anyway. But of course, McCabe had an old, longstanding grudge against Flynn because of an old EEO complaint, a, a discrimination complaint, in which Flynn stuck up for the person who said he was or that she was a victim of uh, discrimination. That angered McCabe. And of he course, was always looking for payback. And and, uh, and Flynn also didn't donate to his wife's state senate campaign in Virginia, so that didn't sit well with him either. I'm sure. Uh, now, if only he had done that, this would be a different story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it really seems like that, doesn't it? Now, um, what, one other thing, though, on this, and then I want to get to Comey. But um, so what Dershowitz is saying about, uh, you know, the process crime and that it's illegitimate uh, to charge lying to the FBI when the lie is not material to the investigation, which it wasn't in this case. So this is why the FBI moved to see him prosecuted under the Logan Act, in addition to lying to the FBI, because you have to have a predicate for an actual crime. And so he becomes the first American uh, prosecuted under the Logan Act since 1799, the president's incoming national security advisor. Yeah, and I completely agree with Dershowitz. The Logan Act is probably unconstitutional, but it's almost certainly unconstitutional in the context that it's being applied. Whenever a new administration uh, gets after the election when a new incoming administration is getting ready to handle the transition. It's incidental to the p- peaceful transfer of power that he sends that the new president sends his people out to go start building bridges and opening lines of communication with uh, officials from around the world. The, the dip- diplomatic uh, authority of the president invests with the elected president. And as he's getting ready to to assume office, it's not reasonable that he would be expected to wait until January, whatever it is, 16th, the day of inauguration, before he starts to do that. Every president has done that, every one of them. And in many cases, it's it's foreign countries reaching out to the new president because they don't want to get caught flat footed when the new president takes takes office. And that's really all Flynn was doing. And and somehow they've they've tried to criminalize that the FBI is interfering with that process of the president getting his diplomatic uh, sea legs, as it, as it might be. And the FBI has no business meddling in that process. Uh, speaking of criminalizing uh, official actions, uh, there's a lot of individuals uh, who want to see Comey prosecuted for the way that he conducted, uh, well, himself, generally speaking. But perhaps in this particular instance, given this 2018 interview he did in New York, where he basically says, yeah, I dispatched these FBI agents to interview Flynn to try to get him to lie. Uh, we uh, went around normal protocols of going through the White House counsel's office because we thought we could get away with it. And uh, they see this as a less than um, good faith action by the former FBI director. But it seems to me that based on what we know at this point, you still don't have a criminal offense. You may have an unethical uh, breach of his professional canons. You may have a beef with the ARDC, but you don't have a criminal act. Well, if you want low-hanging fruit on Comey, what you do is you prosecute under the uh, uh, for the w- what he certified to the FISA court on Carter Page. He certified that there was no other way to get the information other than spying electronically on Carter Page. And the problem with that certification is, is that Carter Page wrote an open letter to Comey, published in the Washington Post a month before the first FISA warrant was issued, in which Carter Page offered to meet with any FBI agent to interview on anything, including Russia. Comey ignored that. He told the FISA court there was no other way to get this information. He should have at least, he had a duty under the law, under the the Constitution, to at least exhaust the voluntary interview before he turned to the more invasive 
intrusive methods. It's called the least intrusive method doctrine. Comey certified that. His own signature appears in that FISA warrant. So if you want low-hanging fruit, if you want to prosecute Comey, I've got an article that uh, that spells all that out. And and so you be, and that you be, that's a prosecutor. That's not something where he can say, "Oh, that was a an honest error." That's a that's a professional breach, but it's not a it's not a criminal act. No, his certification goes directly to certifying that 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 there's no other way to get this information, and he he clearly was put on notice that that there was another way. So he he, he perjured himself. Yeah, he he made a false certification to the FISA court, a very specific, direct, false certification. Well, we'll uh, continue to wait with bated breath for the Durham investigations report. He is Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist, American Greatness, and the Daily Caller. And I'll tweet out his uh, pieces on uh, the Flynn prosecution uh, at Dan Prof Show. Adam, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is 60 Seconds of Sanity with Dan Proft. The timer starts now. Capitalism, as we know, it will likely be changed forever. When the government is called upon to protect you on the downside, they have every right to regulate the upside. Those are the cautionary words of billionaire investor Leon Cooperman. It's debatable whether the government in this instance is protecting the downside, generally speaking, rather than providing some just compensation for what amounts to Fifth Amendment takings of private property by forcing closures of businesses. What is not debatable is that the productive sector, not the public sector, will lead the recovery. Government help invariably comes with claims, explicit or implicit. Therefore, it is necessary to consider the precedents being set in order to identify current overreaches so as to rescind them and guard against future ones. As the thickness of the Federal Register will attest, it takes a concerted heave to get the state out of any place into which it has insinuated itself. As with fighting back the pandemic, the restoration of American civil society and America's private economy is an all-hands-on-deck exercise, batten down the hatches. And while you're contemplating Cooperman's caution and my reaction, something else that uh, you can do that is productive and it's not debatable, and that's in this time of uh, shutdowns or even phased reopenings, you want to check out uh, a new film series that affirms your faith, uh, particularly for uh, Christians, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, a documentary which prevents convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. This is the work product of filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental. So right now you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, at home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. The other movies in the series... Uh, in addition to Exodus, the Moses controversy, as well as the Red Sea miracle. 
right now. Again, watch them at PatternsOfEvidence.com. Uh, this includes the series, a panel discussion moderated, moderated by uh, Gretchen Carlson and featuring uh, our very own Dennis Prager, our very own Eric Metaxas, as well as Anne Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and others in the series. Go to PatternsOfEvidence.com. That's PatternsOfEvidence.com. Tim Mahoney's Faith-Affirming Journey in Search of Evidence for Some of the Bible's Most Epic Questions. Parting of the Red Sea. Did Moses write the first books of the Bible? Did stories like Exodus really happen? Watch it all. Patterns of Evidence. uh, PatternsOfEvidence.com. That's PatternsOfEvidence.com. someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Was it a mistake or was it uh, malice? The Chinese communist response to the outbreak of COVID nineteen. President Trump was uh, asked that, addressed it at last night's Fox News town hall. I think they made a horrible mistake and they didn't want to admit it. We wanted to go in. They didn't want us there. Even World Health wanted to go in. They were admitted, but much later. You know, not immediately. And my opinion is they made a mistake. They tried to cover it. They tried to put it out. It's like a fire. You know, it's really like trying to put out a fire. They couldn't put out the fire. What they really treated the world badly on, they stopped people going into China, but they didn't stop people going into the USA and all over the world. So you could fly out of Wuhan, where the primary problem was, all of the problem, essentially, also where the lab is, But you could fly out of Wuhan and you could go to different parts of the world, but you couldn't go to Beijing and you couldn't go to any place in China. So what's that all about? And Department of Homeland Security has put together an intelligence report that uh, reporters at Politico apparently got a look at, which contends, among other things, that it uh, withheld information about the severity of the viral outbreak. So it would have time to hoard medical supplies, according to the intelligence report. This is in January. Increased its imports of surgical face masks by 278%, surgical gowns by 72%, surgical gloves by 32%. Meanwhile, slashing its exports of a host of medical products, surgical gloves, surgical gowns, face masks, medical ventilators, intubator kits, thermometers, and cotton balls and swabs. Sort of evidence of guilt and a recognition of what was happening. Why don't we just start there? For more on this, let's be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, it's good to be with you. Does you know, uh, Trump have that uh, more or less correct? 
Well, we don't know. I mean, I was in the Army for 25 years, and I've been dealing with intelligence and intelligence matters for you know many, many, many decades. And I, I know how this works. I'm sure what the president is publicly stating reflects kind of the, the contemporary understanding in the intelligence community. But we have to recognize, you know, we don't know what's underneath that, how fragmentary that is, how that information was really compiled, stuff's called sources and methods. And this is important because what we're really getting at, other than the, kind of the one factual question, which is there is now some suggestion that possibly came out of a lab and somebody inadvertently brought it out of the lab and got it into the public, and that's how the disease spread. Other than that factual question, which I don't know if we actually have a definitive answer to yet, the other questions are really about matters of intent. We know that the Chinese did, but why did they do what they did? So, I mean, there were two big questions there. One is, is that they knew this thing was unbelievably devastating, and they said, well, let's just let it go worldwide, and everybody will suffer just like we are. That's one question. And the other is, we know this thing's absolutely terribly devastating. Let's not tell anybody until we've stockpiled all our medical supplies and we take care of ourselves first. Those are hard questions to answer. Rarely do you actually have a smoking gun, but people have to realize is we're collecting all kinds of intelligence, messages going back and forth between embassies, messages between officials, uh, all kinds of things. So I think the jury in a sense is really kind of still out on the intent questions, at least publicly. And it may be some time before all that gets answered, certainly some time before the underlying intelligence that's available becomes publicly available. Well, I mean, wait, so the, the mens rea here with respect to the Chinese communists, I'm, I'm having a difficult time following you. You're saying that we don't know if they did anything purposeful with respect to uh, combating or more to the point, not combating, informing or not informing the rest of the world? We know that they did not inform the rest of the world. That's factual. There's a requirement for reporting under the international health regulations that uh, they violated those. And they violated them, not like missing the deadline by 24 hours, but in weeks. So it's very, very clear that in delaying telling the rest of the world how communicable this disease was, essentially nobody else had really had time to prepare for the pandemic. So we know they did that. We also know that they let tens of thousands of people travel when they knew the disease was highly communicable and they knew that some of them could have infected. We know that they did that. Now, why did that happen? Was that stupid bureaucracy? Was that just they were embarrassed by it? I don't think at least publicly we have we have the information to decisively answer those questions. I mean, if those numbers check out about what they were doing in January in court, with respect to imports and exports of PPE, um, that certainly is uh, strong circumstantial evidence of uh, malice. Right. And I think that's the point is we have really very powerful circumstantial evidence of malice. That's fair. But we don't have a smoking gun. On the other hand, I'm not in the let's be soft on China. Can't no, China isn't involved here because they're absolutely involved here because they committed two actions which absolutely ensure that this would be a global pandemic and that hundreds of thousands of people would die. One is they let people leave the country when they knew they were likely contagious. And the other was they denied critical information to the rest of the world that would have enabled the rest of the world to prepare for the disease. And they might not have had the pandemic break out in their country, including not providing live virus samples of the original strain of the disease. They still haven't done that. And that is really, really important because obviously we can all go get samples of the virus now. That's not a problem. But you want to be able to compare what you're seeing with the original virus 
so you can see how it's mutating and adapting. And that's critical information. And they still haven't complied that. And remember, this started way back last year, and we're now into the spring, and they still haven't come clean. Uh, Ann Applebaum writing in The Atlantic, uh, the rest of the world is laughing at Trump, uh, quoting her, I'm in a world where people laugh at the American president, uh, the Chinese might succeed. Inside the bubble of officials who surround Pompeo, it may well seem very brave and cutting edge to use the expression Wuhan virus or call for bigger and bolder rhetorical acts on China. But out there in the real world, out there in the world where Pompeo's boss is perceived as a sinister clown and Pompeo himself is just a sinister clown's lackey, not very many people are listening. Once again, a vacuum has opened up and the Chinese regime is leading the race to fill it. Look, well, Anne's incredibly tone deaf on this issue, and and, yes. and she just hates the administration. It's blinded any sense of objectivity that she might have. So we have plenty of evidence that it's a real struggle out there between the United States and China on this. So, for example, the United Kingdom, which had uh, was going to allow uh, Huawei, the telecom company, to build about 30% of their backbone infrastructure for their new 5G network. Most people think the British are going to reverse that call because they're just so angry at the Chinese. There are many parts of the world where people are incredibly angry at the Chinese. And the Chinese, in response to that, have been aggressively going out, attacking the U.S. and offering people stuff. But look at Africa. We've got stories out of Africa, which has really been the Chinese playground for years now. One is, is, is stories in the African media about how appallingly Africans are treated in China. I mean, blatant racism, way worse than Jim Crow. And the other is, is the incredible that we're all, these African countries are essentially on default because of their economic problems. The Chinese aren't doing loan forgiveness. The Chinese are seizing state assets. So I, I think Anne's just completely wrong on this. There's a real struggle out there. And if the United States had been silent, that would have been like a giant green light to China to just roll over everything. Well, and, 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 and I, I, that's why I want to get people have to hear from the internationalist intelligentsia such as it is, because, I mean, the, the rhetoric coming from the Ann Applebaums and Ian Bremmer, which I'm about to get to, is very reminiscent of the, the I'm not covering for the Soviet Union. I'm not promoting the Soviet Union. I'm just saying you know, that Ronald Reagan is a clown and the Soviet Union is rushing to fill the gap of international leadership. Ian Bremmer writing this, China is braced for the fact that no matter who wins or loses in November, bipartisan hawkishness against China is going to be a factor in Washington for some time to come. That being the case, most officials in China privately say they'd prefer an anti-China president in Trump style, divisive, unilateral, dismissive of allies, than in the mold of Joe Biden. China wants Trump to get reelected, says Ian Bremmer in time. Like Iowa Levy, and he's a great friend, but again, what's his evidence for that? I mean, he writes that. Who in the Chinese government has he actually talked to? And do they just candidly tell him exactly what they're thinking? (laughs) Um, I mean, I think we just have to ask the common sense question is, no American president has ever pushed back on China for like 20 years in a serious way. The president really squeezed them on a trade deal. He's come after them in, uh, in the South China Seas. He's doubled down on support for Taiwan. He's done everything the Chinese absolutely hate, and yet that's the guy they would prefer. It's just like, you know, we went through the same thing with Russia, where this administration has had the toughest Russia policy for decades. And, and you could go through policy after policy after policy where the Americans are building up NATO and are tough on Russia, and yet the narrative from the critics is, oh, the president's just a pawn of Putin. They repeat the same narrative, regardless of what the situation is. You just kind of wonder what's going on here. It's just difficult to take it as a credible, reasonable view that's expressed and not just kind of partisan hackery. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. 
Jim, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. You guys make my Monday awesome. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, one of the president's chief economic advisors, Larry Kudlow, along with uh, Jake Tapper on State of the Union over the weekend. And uh, this to say in terms of expectations for economic recovery. We know the economy is still in a terrible contractionary phase, tremendous hardships uh, everywhere. That's why we've put up several rescue packages uh, led by President Trump and with the bipartisan support of the Congress. So we are working through that. It's going to be very difficult in the months ahead. No question. Having said that, I will note that the Congressional Budget Office and a bunch of private forecasters, uh, Wall Street Journal surveys and so forth, are looking for a very strong second half economic rebound and suggesting that 2021 next year could be one of the fastest growth rebounds in American history or recent history. Well, sure. I mean, if you start from a complete shutdown of the American economy, you've got nowhere to go but up. For uh, more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Simon Mayerhofer. He is the founder of iSpy ETF and publisher of the Profit Radar Report. Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Do you uh, subscribe to uh, Larry Kudlow's general optimism about uh, maybe not a V-shaped recovery, but starting in the third quarter, a a U-shaped one? Good question. I would say I distinguish between economy and the stock market. Yes. And overall, my outlook for the stock market going forward, maybe a year or two is better than for the economy. And, And explain why that would be. A couple of reasons. One is we have the Federal Reserve uh, throwing a ton of money at the stock market and the economy, I guess. And we've had a similar playbook back in 2007, 2008. And uh, stocks rallied fairly quickly in 2009, but it took a couple of years for the economy to catch up and for the real estate market back then, too. So that may be the similar this time around, too, but there's just a lag time. But the bigger issue that I see, and that's a mega trend, it is people's distrust in government. And you see that always worldwide with every country. I have a feeling that eventually it will lead to an exodus of money from government treasuries. And that will lead to money having to go somewhere, which may end up being stocks. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king. And U.S. equities, especially the blue chips, may be the one-eyed. And that may be the only reason that stocks may be going up. Speaking of the exodus of money, how are we to interpret Warren Buffett's exodus from airline stocks? I honestly, I have not read enough about it to give you an educated opinion. Okay. No, fair enough. I, I, he he made a comment that was uh, unlike him to detail the transaction, suggesting it wasn't so much a comment on the management of the particular airlines as it was the sort of unprecedented uh, time that they've had to endure. And and I, I, I uh, now I'm assuming things that he didn't say, but and I assume the climb back he thinks that they're facing, which is going to be the same in, in many industries, I suspect. Yeah, I suspect you're right. It's it's interesting, just touching by my own circle of friends, 
there are some people that are not very afraid of going outside and being exposed. I guess I would fall into that category. I abide to all the rules, but I'm not afraid per se. But there are others. I think their social life will be just scarred in terms of how they interact. And you may never be able to hug them again or shake their hands. And they may never want to travel again and be in close proximity with people like you would be on an airplane or on a cruise ship. So I can see where those are tough industries to be in. Yeah, well, we'll see. Never's a long time. But going back to um, the market, you know, we've had some really curious days in the last couple of weeks, particularly days where you see, you know, four and five million people file first time unemployment benefits and the market responds positively. Is is that just a function of what you said previously, which is the, the Fed pumping so much money into the market to to buoy it? Probably, yes. Partially, I believe it's a reversion to the mean. You know, in March and April, we had the stock market decline that is unprecedented in history. The, the speed and the depth of the decline, to find any likes to it, you'd have to go to the actual crash phases of the 1929-1987-2008 bear markets, and those are the worst of the worst. Fascinatingly, the closest resemblance, if you plot the price action on top of each other, there's a very close resemblance to 1987. That stopped after 37-some drop, at least for the Dow Jones, and that's about where we got in this year. Then there was a rebound, and then there was a retest of the low. But because this drop was so fast and so furious, the rebound, it seemed to me, had to be also fast and furious. And that's kind of what happened. And now we've had kind of a reversion to the mean. We are back at neutral, and we may go down another 10, 15% retest the low before the next rally gets started. That's my best guess. And so, you know, with the market being forward looking, as it's often said, is the roller coaster somewhat dependent on how fast states get reopened and the extent to which they reopen such that the extent to their, which they're we're generating private sector GDP again? You know, that, that question is above my pay scale, to be honest. Yeah, okay. What, what, I find, what I found is there is there's too many factors in the stock market to narrow it down to some economic benchmarks. Um, one of the other factors, you know, you've got the Fed funneling money into stocks. You've got where else can money go? You have people's perception. Um, I personally don't really look at economic numbers as a predictor of stock market because it's more of a lagging indicator than a leading indicator. So so right now, would you say this is 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 mostly psychology uh, or is a combination of psychology and monetary policy or what are the variables that you do look at? That's a, probably a better approach. Yeah, good question. Psychology has a lot to do with it. Um, psychology, money flow. Also, I try to take clues from history. I spend a lot of time identifying similar periods of price actions and see how people reacted to it. The events 
are always different, of course, and, and this event is very different to 9-11 or whatever, but the emotion behind people's reactions, whether it is fear or euphoria, tend to be the same. Um, so often the reaction, there is some resemblance, and although we are dealing with unprecedented times, looking at history, I found it to be pretty accurate, and I thought that the S&P would bottom maybe around 2,200 and rally to about 3,000. Um, so it's pretty close. It's a guide, but it's not perfect. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, it calls to mind uh, the quote attributed to Harry Truman, which is, there's nothing new in this world, just the history we don't know. So that historical context is, uh, is so important. Uh, he is Simon Mayerhofer, founder of iSpy ETS and publisher of the Profit Radar Report. Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We uh, covered the Biden interview by Mika uh, on uh, Friday, but there's been more developments here that are worth discussing, delving into this a little bit, uh, in, including some rather interesting perspectives from unexpected quarters. For example, Elizabeth Bruning writing on the pages of the New York Times. She's an opinion writer for the Times. Democrats, it's time to consider a plan B. Now, perhaps uh, this is what uh, many have wanted from the beginning because Joe Biden doesn't seem equal to the task of defeating President Trump just in terms of sort of capacity and mental acuity. Uh, Nonetheless, Elizabeth Rooney writes, if you're lucky when you report sexual assault, you become known as a person who was sexually assaulted. If you're unlucky, you become known as a person who lied about being sexually assaulted. It could still go either way for Tara Reid. And I agree. I don't know. Um, and uh, Bruning goes on to describe uh, uh, factoids in each direction uh, that support those who don't believe her, that support those who do believe her. Uh, she uh, writes, though, and this is worth noting, I have my own impressions regarding Miss Reed's allegations, but no one knows certainly whether her claims are true. Agreed. What I can assert with firm conviction is that Democrats ought to start considering a backup plan for 2020. Miss Reed's account is not nearly as incredible as some have argued. In the course of my reporting, I've worked closely with many survivors of sexual assault. It isn't unusual, in my experience, for survivors to exhibit behavior that seems unstable or erratic to others. In point of fact, she uh, quotes Scott Berkowitz, the founder of the uh, Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Quote, it's not at all uncommon for someone to still have positive feelings about aspects of the person who assaulted them or to admire or respect them. With people who work for politicians, there's usually a strong measure of loyalty or respect in the relationship. So it's not indicative that someone wasn't telling the truth. That's not dispositive of the issue either, but it's an interesting perspective. So that's one issue that uh, Biden has. In addition, of course, the issue he has is the own, his own standard that he set. And Andrew Sullivan, again, hardly a Trump fan, uh, writes New York Magazine over the weekend, The problem with defending due process in a case like Biden's with respect to Tara Reid is that Biden himself, when it comes to allegations of sexual abuse and harassment, doesn't believe in it. 
And uh, this point was put to him by Mika, to her credit, about his statements with respect to Christine Blasey Ford during the Kavanaugh uh, controversy and uh, the presumption that she was telling the truth. For a woman to come forward in the glaring light to focus nationally, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she's talking about is real, whether or not she forgets facts, whether or not it's been made worse or better over time. That's the standard that Joe Biden set with Blaze Ford in during the Kavanaugh confirmation. And now it's a switcheroo. Now, all of a sudden, both he and Democrats are rediscovering due process. Uh, and this is uh, a, a principle, both in terms of a legal context, as well in terms of a normative context within a free society that we've advocated for on this show across the political spectrum. And I continue to give uh, Joe Biden his due process due, if you will. But it is worth pointing out his uh, shifting standard. And uh, it's also worth going back to portions of the interview uh, that are sort of just remarkable. You can see why there may be some very politically expedient reasons why Elizabeth Bruning is uh, suggesting a plan B and she's doing so publicly what a lot of Democrats are doing privately. This exchange, Joe Biden on releasing the Biden papers, quote unquote, that uh, he turned over to the University of Delaware that are now not to be released until Joe Biden is no longer a, a you know, running for public office or a public office holder. About your University of Delaware records. Do you agree with the reporting that those records were supposed to be revealed to the public and then they were resealed for a longer period of time until after you leave, quote, public life? And if you agree with that, if that's what happened, why did that happen? Because, look, the fact is that there's a lot of things that of speeches I've made, positions I've taken, interviews that 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 I did overseas with people, all of those things relating to my job. And the idea that they would all be made public in the fact while I was running for public office, they could be really taken out of context. Their papers are position papers. They are documents that existed. And, and uh, that that when I, for example, when I go, when I met with Putin or when I met with whomever and all of that to be fodder in a campaign at mm-hmm. this time, I don't know of anybody who's done anything like that. The idea that what you did as a public official in your official duties would be made public and you could be held to account for them in the context of running for president of the United States, that's problematic. That's another interesting standard that Joe Biden has said. When we come back, uh, more from the Biden-Mika interview as well as Gretchen Whitmer on the tapper of the weekend, rallying for the defense of Joe Biden. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We left off where Joe Biden was explaining to Mika that his Biden papers that were donated to the University of Delaware for some sort of Biden library, they should be kept under seal, even though they're documents related to his speeches and conduct as a public official, because to make them public would be unfair for people to consider in the context of his running for yet another public office, this time 
his third time for president of the United States. His past public actions as an elected official should be off limits from his current candidacy for president. The mind shudders. To her credit, as I mentioned before the break, Mika pressed him on the issue of those papers and and just anything that may be related to Tara Reid in the, the quote-unquote Biden papers. So, uh, personnel records aside, are you certain there was nothing about Tara Reid in those records? And if so, I am absolutely certain. Why, not, why not approve a search of her name in those records? Approve a search of her name? Yes, and reveal uh, anything not... that might be related to Tara Reid in the University of Delaware records. There is nothing. They wouldn't, they're, they're not there. And if they, if it's a... I, 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 you know, I don't understand what you're, the point you're trying to make. Uh, he's getting confused. It's a fairly simple point. I appreciate your word that there's nothing there. How about uh, independent third party to confirm or deny that? I'm, I'm just talking about her name, not anybody else in those records. A search for that. Awkward silence. Awkward silence. Nothing classified with the president or anybody else. I'm just asking, why not do a search for Tara Reid's name in the University of Delaware records? Look, I mean, who who, who does that search? The University of Delaware? Uh... Yeah, it would be make a great Curb Your Enthusiasm episode if it wasn't so serious. Uh, The the remarkable... uh, confusion that Joe Biden exhibits to a fairly straightforward query, uh, have an independent at the University of Delaware. Uh, how about um, a uh, trusted member of the media? How many of those do you have that are on your side to pour through the records? I'm not sure we could trust what a trusted member of the media in Biden's view would produce or not produce. But nonetheless, at least you could say I allowed for a third party to independently verify what I say about the Biden papers, the University of Delaware, that's not happening. Uh, in addition to this, the flacking for Joe Biden from the same people who uh, believed Blase Ford without vetting or consideration. It's a, it's a good point that Molly Hemingway makes, too, by the way, at the Federalist.com. She uh, reminds us that um, Tara Reid's mother called Larry King about uh, what allegedly happened to her daughter. Blase Ford's father supported Kavanaugh's confirmation. Just another sort of interesting contextual factoid to put into the mix. But Gretchen Whitmer, she's offended, right? Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, shortlist for Biden's running mate. So she's doing her best Stacey Abrams impersonation with Jake Tapper in uh, rallying to the defense of Joe Biden. And she's offended as a sexual assault survivor herself that she's even being asked the question. Uh, You've said that you believe uh, Vice President Biden. I want to compare that to 2018 when you said you believe Dr. Christine Blasey Ford after she accused now Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, of assault. Uh, Kavanaugh also, like Biden, categorically denied that accusation. Uh, And Blasey Ford, to be honest, she did not have uh, the contemporaneous accounts uh, of her view of what happened that, that Tara Reid does. Um, you have spoken movingly about how you're a survival, survivor of assault yourself. Why do you believe Biden and not Kavanaugh? Are, are they not both entitled to the same presumption of innocence, regardless of their political views? You know, Jake, as a survivor and as a feminist, I'll say this. We need to give people an opportunity to tell their story. But then we have a duty to vet it. 
And just because you're a survivor doesn't mean that every claim is equal. It means we give them the ability to make their case and the other side as well, and then to make a judgment that is informed. I have read a lot about this current allegation. I know Joe Biden, and I've watched his defense, and there's not a pattern that goes into this. And I think that for these reasons, I'm very comfortable um, that, that Joe Biden is who he says he is. He's, um, and, and you know what? And that's all I'm gonna say about it. I really resent the fact that every time a case comes up, all of us survivors have to weigh in. It is reopening wounds and it is, you know, take us at our word, ask us for our opinion and let's move on. The moral indignation by Governor Whitmer is a nice cover, isn't it? She's offended. She wasn't offended to volunteer her views during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, her views in support of Christine Blasey Ford and belief in Christine Blasey Ford's allegations. Now, with respect to Joe Biden, she's a Democrat governor of Michigan. He's the Democrat presidential nominee. She's on his shortlist for vice president. She's offended that she would have to even discuss the allegation against, against Joe Biden as a feminist as a Me Too movement proponent, ostensibly. But it's okay when Republicans countrywide have to answer for any bad actions or bad utterances of any Republican anywhere. Oh, yeah, the hand-wringing. Gretchen Whitmer's so offended. And it's really shameless to use the cover as a sexual assault survivor as the basis for her offense. No, the, the, she's offended by the exposure of her hypocrisy. And she's using that as her cover, of course. Now, speaking of offensive, Kurt Eichenwald, best-selling author, the informant, former New York Times reporter, Vanity Fair. Uh, he's uh, drawn a conclusion. <laughs> There's no restraint here, uh, man of the left, Kurt Eichenwald. Tara Reid is a liar. Her attention-seeking or corrupt performance has demeaned people who have been actual victims. He said, um, you get to the point where you're able to discuss it, which I did only in recent years. He said he was uh, raped. Kurt Eichmann said he was raped in the early 80s, then called Tara Reid a horrible woman dining out on others' pain for attention or to advance her political interests in Bernie or to appease the man she praised forever, Putin, until she realized it looked bad in the circumstance, so she stopped. She, he just tortures her. And uh, again, moral certitude in terms of whether or not she's telling the truth. I don't know. But I know this, that conservatives like me were giving... Brett Kavanaugh, the benefit of the doubt and due process norms. And uh, the same with Keith Ellison, former congressman, now attorney general of Minnesota, with the sexual assault claims against him during the last campaign, the midterms, where statewide election, where he ran in 2018 and won the attorney general spot in Minnesota. And now we're doing the same to Joe Biden. What's the left doing? The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, forget a call into the governor's office or a, a letter when you can uh, chart a flight path that sends the message instead. <laughs> this is airplane quality. Airplane as in the movie, as in the Zucker Brothers. Where are they when you need them? Eric Frederick, 45 years old, spent about an hour charting a path over Grand Rapids that spelled out uh, a uh, two-letter message to Governor Gretchen Whitmer. 
with an arrow pointing directly over the governor's mansion. His flight path, as you can see in this New York Post column, which I'll tweet out, New York Post story on it, I should say, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. F.U., uh, your number one of sorts, Gretchen Whitmer. He uh, said he was inspired to hop on a propeller plane on Friday morning after Whitmer announced the extension of the state's lockdown order through May 28th, calling it a power trip and saying that uh, the government, no matter Democrats or Republicans, always seem like they're trying to do something just to prove they're doing something without weighing the ramifications. That strikes me as about right. That is a very creative way to do it. Written, uh, uh, well... Uh, it's not skywriting. It's a flight path. So it's a air traffic controller's delight, if you will. But uh, it's a great screenshot. It really, <laughs> really sends the message. Creative ways to communicate. One other note I wanted to mention before we close out today's program, contact tracing. One of the things that's going on now with the lockdown and bust governors like Whitmer, like Pritzker in Illinois, like uh, I don't know, seemingly uh, Newsom. In California, remarkable, but uh, is the contact tracing apps, uh, contact tracing, I should say, and then the question of apps. Uh, So contact tracing is the new goalpost. We can't reopen or we can't begin the phase of reopening until we get contact tracing up and running. And they focus on personnel. What we should be talking about is technology because that's where the rubber meets the road and there are real liberty concerns. For example, in Kansas City, They're requiring for now, until this is challenged, churches to keep lists of attendees. This, according this uh, policy issued by Kansas City, St. Louis, excuse me, Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Mayor Quentin Lucas. Houses of worship treat the same with the same restrictions as, quote unquote, non-essential businesses in terms of keeping records of who attends a service or even if anyone attends the uh, enters the building. So both businesses as well as churches keep a list of those who are in the building or attend a church service, for example, for contact tracing purposes. That's the predicate. There's also a good write-up we'll have to get into in more detail later in the week, uh, perhaps tomorrow, on uh, real concerns about contact tracing apps, their uh, incidents of false negatives, uh, the ability to use them as griefing, you know, intentionally crying wolf issues, uh, all sorts of all sorts of issues. So contact tracing, that's the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it, both in terms of reopening uh, as well as in terms of the actual tracing. Thank you for joining us again in another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow night where we'll continue this conversation. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.